Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me, Bill Arnold. I'm awfully glad to be uh, spending this time with you today. Whether you're uh, listening live right now or you're catching me a little bit later on podcast, it is nice to be together. Certainly is uh, nicer to be in contact than out of contact because there is less opportunities to be together and now we need more opportunities to stay connected. And this is really nice for me. I get to come in and Rebecca's here and we're uh, plowing ahead with the show and uh, Awfully uh, blessed that we have guests that have said, yeah, I can come on and do it. Dr. Everett Piper is going to be my guest in just a minute. We're going to bring him on. And I'm looking at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. I love that verse. Let me take a very short break and then I'll bring on Dr. Everett Piper. Are you afraid of the coronavirus? With all the hype you hear on the news and in political debates, it's easy to become fearful even though you are at a very low risk of getting this virus. Remember, your hope is in the Lord, not in the evening news. God is your salvation. Trust in Him. Don't be afraid. Again and again in the Bible, He commands, Fear not, because I am with you. Fear is a lack of faith in God. Isn't it good to know the promises of God? In Proverbs 29, 25, it says, Whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And in 2 Timothy 1, 7, Paul writes, For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. When you demonstrate peace in the midst of crisis that passes understanding, it will be a vibrant witness to your family, your friends, and to the world. A helpful message from the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. Thanks for being with me today. Dr. Everett Piper is my guest on our studio line. He is uh, author of the best-selling Not a Daycare, The Devastating Consequences of Abandoning Truth. He's also the uh, former president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University. He was there 17 years. Now he's a columnist for the Washington Times. Everett, welcome back to the show. Hey, Bill. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. I appreciate you asking. All right, here's a blanket question. What have you been thinking about lately? Isn't it exhausting? You know, somebody asked me the other day um, how to handle this, and I said, number one, turn off your phone. Number two, get away from your computer for a good period of time. Number three, relax, read a book, read a lot of old books, Mm -hmm. read the Bible, read the Bible, and then just, if you can, enjoy the downtime. In other words, we've just got to get away from the negativity and the doom and gloom, because our faith is not in hand sanitizers. Our faith is in our Savior, Jesus Christ. This will be okay. I love that, and I appreciate the encouragement and uh, what you're telling my listeners right now. But you also uh, wrote an article, not to stay on the subject here, but you did talk about uh, COVID-19 hysteria and how we can neutralize that with faith and kindness towards neighbors. I know that would be encouraging for listeners to hear more about that. 
Well, you know, I've, wrote, I've written two um, columns in the two previous weeks, this past Sunday and then the Sunday before that, for the Washington Times, my weekly contribution there. Both of them have been on the coronavirus, and both of them have focused on crises that the church and the free people of Western civilization has faced in the past. You know, the interesting thing is the church has been through this before. The church, with a capital C, has existed for 2,000 years. The church has been exposed to the bubonic plague. The church has been exposed to two world wars. The church has risen above human crisis and human sin repeatedly. There's nothing we're facing right now that we haven't faced before. So let's go back to a couple great thinkers and great leaders of the church um, that some people will recognize. First, there's C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis wrote a great essay in 1948, right after World War II, and he titled it Living in an Atomic Age. Now, it's interesting because everybody was wringing their hands and they were afraid that they were going to be blown up by a nuclear bomb in 1948. And C.S. Lewis said this, and I'm going to replace the atomic bomb with the words the virus in this particular comment. C.S. Lewis said, if the virus is to find us, let it find us, not huddled together as a group of cowards and uh, frightened sheep, but as men who are going about their business, giving their children baths, having conversations with their neighbors, reading and writing and acting like human beings. If the virus is to find us, let it find us acting like men, not as cowering children. That's C.S. Lewis talking about the potential of an atomic bomb. And keep in mind who Lewis was. Lewis was a soldier in the trenches of World War I. He knew crisis. He actually lived through World War II, and he was the voice of sanity and of Christianity to the British people during that crisis. And then, while they were all huddled together like cowards because of fear of the atomic bomb, he said, stop it. Stop it. Grow up. Act like men. Don't act like children. Recognize that God is in charge and that if the virus, if you will, is going to find us, let it find us acting like confident Christians and not like cowards huddled together in the corner. Yeah, powerful. And then I think you've got some uh, insights from Spurgeon as well, don't you? I do. I didn't know if we had time before, but yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, Spur- Spurgeon, okay? My second article is the one we're referring to right now. Now, Spurgeon actually was in Great Britain, in London, during the cholera pandemic of 1854. And Spurgeon walked into the streets to serve, to be the hands, the eyes, the mouth, the feet, the body of Jesus Christ. And this is what Spurgeon said in the middle of that crisis. He said, faith appropriated, I felt secure, refreshed, girt with immortality. I went on in a calm and peaceful spirit, and I felt no fear of evil, and I suffered no harm. This is Spurgeon. You can almost hear Spurgeon crying out as he gave himself to the people of Great Britain. You can hear him saying, and he was called the Prince of Preachers, by the way, you can almost hear Spurgeon calling out, Never let a good crisis go to waste. Run toward the storm. Don't run away from it. Embrace the calamity. Have some courage. This is your time. This is your destiny. This is your opportunity. Shine with the light of salvation. 
and the love of your Redeemer. Be the church, for Jesus himself has told you that the gates of hell will not prevail against you. Put your trust in God, not yourselves, not in government. Believe in God's sovereignty. Walk in his grace. March with confidence. Trust your king. I can hear Spurgeon calling out to us to do that right now. You know, uh, let me go back and repeat what he said, and then I'll close with this. Um, I'll take a breath. Faith appropriated. <laughs> I felt secure. I felt refreshed. I was girt with immortality and went on in a calm and a peaceful spirit. I felt no fear of evil, and I suffered no harm. You know what? Rather it be a bad economy a bad uh, or a bad virus, we can trust that, again, I'll repeat this, that our salvation is not in hand sanitizers, but our salvation is in our Savior. And that's what we should be showing the word, the world right now, that we feel no fear, we will suffer no harm, we trust, and we are going to be the hands, the feet, the church, the body of Christ. Yeah. Everett, wouldn't you say this is a, an incredible um, evangelistic opportunity as we're having uh, more measured and intentional conversations with neighbors and friends, maybe some of your friends who have been kicking the tire spiritually for a while, uh, we, we can come, along, come alongside now and have uh, the next level of conversation with uh, these people. But, exactly. Let, let's quote Rahm Emanuel uh, when he said, never let a good crisis go to waste. Now, I don't appreciate the way he used that for his political gain, However, there's wisdom in that statement. And as Christians, we should be eager to embrace the crisis rather than wring our hands. We shouldn't let this crisis go to waste. I can hear, hear Spurgeon saying, don't let the crisis go to waste. Show your neighbor the love, the joy, and the peace that a Christian has. Show your neighbor, your city, and your nation that even though we walk through dark valleys, that we don't fear the sting of a disease. Fear has lost its victory, if you will, to paraphrase, and death has lost its sting. This is the message that the church, the body of Christ, should be showing right now. And we have a huge opportunity to be that voice in a culture that needs us. You know, Everett, I bet there's listeners right now that think, I've got an awkward relationship with fill-in-the-blank when it comes to talking about spiritual things. Uh, it's now a great time uh, to say, let's revisit that discussion with that particular friend and say, we've got a Savior, we've got a Redeemer, we've got a Deliverer, and there's nothing more important than your eternal destiny. Exactly. You know, and we also can do that by showing no fear. It's, it's pretty clear that our entire culture, our nation, is afraid right now. We're... the the American people are afraid. Europe is fearful. Everybody's afraid of this unseen enemy, this virus. The Christian can step forward and say, I'm not afraid. I'm confident. I am girt with immortality, to quote Spurgeon. I am confident in my Savior, and I'm going to show the world that salt and that light of the gospel of confidence and courage you will stick out like a sore thumb, and people will beg you for an explanation as to why you have that kind of confidence. What an opportunity the body of Christ has right now. Yeah, I agree. All right, we're going to take a little break. Dr. Everett Piper is, of course, my guest, and we'll be right back in 90 seconds.
Welcome back to the show. Dr. Everett Piper is my guest, former president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University and a columnist for The Washington Times and author of Not a Daycare, The Devastating Consequences of Abandoning Truth. Uh, Everett, I was uh, watching the news the other day and there was a, um, a governor that was talking about what he wanted to encourage others. And this graphic went up on the TV and it was the words practice humanity and practice kindness, compassion, gentility, and patience. These seem to show up in the fruits of the Spirit. Yeah, I don't know who said that, but indeed that is. You know, the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. These are the fruits of the Spirit, and don't we have an opportunity? You know, when there's a storm, you can see the light much more clearly because everything around it is dark. And if we have that confidence, that courage, that faith, that light, if you will, of the gospel, of the confidence that we have in Jesus Christ, when the storm is darkest, we're going to shine boldly and clearly, and we should welcome that and be grateful for it. Like Esther, for such a time as this, we should be thankful for that time. This is our destiny. This is our time. It's an opportunity to shine. Uh, Joseph said, what others intended for evil, God would redeem for good. The Apostle Paul, St. Paul, promises us that all things work together for the good of those that love the Lord. All of these things indicate that when crisis comes, and it will, that we are to be the light of Christ and the voice, the hands, the feet, the body of Jesus Christ in that particular time. Frankly, Bill, I think right now we're experiencing something that's pretty clear. Our culture has been fat and sassy and comfortable without much to worry about for way too long. But that's not the norm of human experience. Uh, C.S. Lewis tells us that. The book of Esther tells us that. St. Paul tells us that. Joseph told us that. We see it time and time again that the human experience is one that has to wrestle with the problem of evil and the problem of suffering. Those things don't disappear just because we've got it fat and sassy in the United States, and this virus is proving that. It's bringing us to us our knees so we can either bow our head before government in submission or we can bow before the eternal God and the master of the universe and thank him and praise him and then serve him accordingly. You know, Everett, I'm kind of excited to think that we could hit a reset button and come out on the other side practicing kindness and compassion and gentility and patience that has been absent from our world for quite a while. Yeah, and, you know, frankly, I think the first thing we need to do, Bill, is we need to practice confession be first and foremost. We need to recognize that repentance is necessary for revival, and if we want to be revived and returned and reformed, if we want all of those things that return us to the true north of Jesus Christ and the morality and the sanity and the dignity of the human being that comes only through practicing uh, subservience and obedience to our Maker and our King and our God and our Lord, then we need to embrace that. You know, Chesterton was the pa- prince of paradox, 
And he told us many times over that it's the paradoxes of life that bring us to the truth of God and the truth of Christ. And right now we're going to see that the paradox of this disease is going to bring us to our knees, and we'll have a choice to either confess our sins before God or to get more arrogant and defiant. And I pray that the body of Christ will lead people toward that confession. Oh, I pray that as well. I heard this illustration probably 30 years ago, and I've, I've remembered it. It's that old expression, when one door closes, another one opens. But sometimes when the first door has closed and the, the new one hasn't opened yet, you're in kind of the dark hallway and at that time, God is so interested in what your heart and mind are doing. And I thought, yeah, that's probably where a lot of people feel. They're going through a dark valley right now. Yeah, and even though the valleys are dark, we need to show the world that we don't fear those valleys, that we can trust that God is leading us through them. Um, you know, I've got a friend, his name is Jim Garlow. Uh, he was the pastor of Skyline uh, Church out in San Diego, which was John Maxwell's church before John Maxwell took off to do his work. Garlow took over there. Mm-hmm. Garlow is a noted author in his own right, and he is uh, a wonderful orator. And in the midst of these crises, um, crises, this is Garlow's admonition, and this is so Garlow-esque. He told me once on the phone, Everett, what a wonderful time to be alive. And that speaks volumes. (laughs) What a wonderful time for us to be alive. These are opportunities. They're not curses when it comes to the Christian and his faith. It's an opportunity. What a wonderful time to be alive. Embrace it. Accept it. Welcome the calamity. Use it as an opportunity to build the kingdom. Use it as an opportunity to tell people who you are. You're, You're girt with immortality. Again, quoting Spurgeon. Carry on with strength and confidence and dignity, because the world is begging for such leaders. Wow, that's great. What are what are some other uh, conversations that you're having with other uh, leaders and and pastors and people that served the way you served previously? Well, you know, it's interesting. You know, we've got a question right now: Should the churches be shutting down uh, as the government is telling us to, or should we defy that? You know, I had one conservative uh, who, and I trust her dearly. She's she's very thoughtful and very well-read. As some churches are defying these orders or these suggestions uh, to not meet if you're over 10 in a group, or some are saying 20 or 50, whatever the governor is telling you, should you comply or should you defy? And my friend, Adina, is suggesting that we should comply, and she referenced the Old Testament as an example as to why. And she said there are multiple situations. Go read Leviticus, for example, where God himself is telling us to quarantine ourselves if we're ill. So the Bible sets a standard for reasonable and rational quarantine to keep the rest of the people healthy when somebody is sick. So that was an interesting take rather than defying these calls to stop meeting together in groups larger than 10. We might want to comply with these calls out of respect for scriptural precedence when it comes to keeping the whole body healthy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Everett, I just had a listener jump in with his comment. I think the pervasive fear is due more to draconian government actions and media fear-mongering than the virus. Oh, I agree. I agree. 
I hope and I pray that there will be a time three, four, five, six weeks from now where we'll all be talking on radio and otherwise about how we overreacted and that this was driven by the virus of social media, the virus that's on your iPhone, as opposed to the virus that's in the air. I think that that's the case. I pray that I'm right. But in the meantime, perhaps we should, out of deference to our neighbor, comply rather than defy the issues that are in play right now. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think the compliance is is uh, a step of obedience. I think it's uh, important that we do our very best to protect others, especially the uh, people who are more at risk and vulnerable and have uh, compromised immune systems. I mean, that's as a believer, I want to do my very best to help them in their situation. Well, I've got a friend over uh, 20 miles from me. He's uh, late 70s, early 80s. He's probably one of the finest scientists that our nation has known. He has a PhD in chemical engineering. He has more patents under his name with a major, major Fortune 500 company than anybody else that's ever worked for that firm. He believes that this is heavily overblown statistically. He believes that we cannot know anything about this virus until we know the denominator. And we don't know the denominator. Therefore, we can't calculate the mortality rate effectively. He thinks that the government has overblown this situation and that it's a virus of social media rather than a biological threat to our nation. He believes that. However, we were going to get together as an act of defiance and just have a steak dinner at a local restaurant. Because I had a cold, I decided to let him know I have a cold and I don't want to expose you to it. I don't want to be responsible for you getting sick. We both agreed that that was the responsible thing to do. Mm -hmm. So you can be a rational person and not be panicking, but you can also be respectful of those around you. And I think that's an example of that. Yeah, that's a good story. You know, I'm also uh, hoping and prayerful that some of the the new routines that we're developing will carry on into uh, the next decade, and hopefully we'll see a big reduction in how flu gets transmit, uh, transmitted next year and hopefully a big reduction in the number of deaths from the flu. Again, what others intended for evil, God always redeems for good. All things work together for the good of those that love the Lord. We need to have confidence of that and recognize that this does not surprise God. He is unchanging. He was the same yesterday, today, and, and forever. You quoted that at the beginning of the show. This does not surprise the master of the universe. It does not surprise Jesus Christ. It does not catch him off guard. So what do we do? We trust and we take our responsibility seriously as members of the body of Christ, as the church, and we do the job he's called us to do. And he promised us the gates of hell won't win. Yeah. You win. They don't. Awesome. Dr. Everett Piper, thank you so much for doing the show. Have a great rest of your day. All right. Blessings. You bet. You bet. We'll take a little break. When we come back, we're going to talk to Pastor Daniel Henderson. He's written a new book called Glorious Finish, Keeping Your Eye on the Prize of Eternity in a Time of Pastoral Failings. We'll be right back.
My guest, Daniel Henderson, is a man who loves Jesus and loves prayer. That's a perfect combo for a kind of a semi-rainy Wednesday afternoon here, given this week that we're having. Uh, he's recently uh, completed a book called Glorious Finish, Keeping Your Eyes on the Prize of Eternity in a Time of Pastoral Failings. Daniel has um, uh, been a senior pastor for over two decades and has really brought prayer-based revitalization to many churches. He now serves as president of Strategic Renewal and dedicates his full-time efforts to help congregations around the world experience renewal. I think we're on the verge of some right now as well. Daniel, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Bill. Good to talk to you again. Yeah. And let's just talk about prayer right now. We, we're sure. doing it more than ever. I know I am. Well, you know, desperation is always a key ingredient to a praying life, but it's often a gift in disguise. So uh, we're unwrapping the gift these days. Uh, hopefully we're doing it well. <laughs> yeah. And Daniel, think about the idea of Christians around the world all praying for the same basic result, that this virus would yeah. be blunted and stopped and slowed down. And really, really, uh, I'm sitting with great expectations as to what God is going to be doing through all this. Well, our crisis gives him a, a great opportunity, doesn't it? And uh, the Lord hears the cries of his people. So uh, we should be standing on our tiptoes seeing what's next. <laughs> yeah. So I want to talk about your book because this is an important topic. And a lot of trusted pastors, um, as we've sadly read about, have fallen into sin and, and really damaged ministries. And and it's like uh, a lot of people and believers have been hurt as a result. Um, yeah. So... Uh, if you would, let's talk a little bit about just that sadness. Well, it is sad, you know, and I, I, I do a lot of work with pastors in the last few years. We've, we've coached hundreds of pastors online. We have a global fellowship of pastors and I remind them, and it's good to remind everyone that they're special targets of the enemy. Uh, Bill, I'm reminded of the old far side cartoon, the two deers in the wood, two deer in the woods. And <laughs> yeah. one of them has a target on his chest, right? right. And says, man, that's a bummer of a birthmark. And, uh, <laughs> right. You know, I, I'm not great at bowling, but I know it's hard to get a strike if you don't hit the head pin. And I know the enemy knows a strategic target. And so I believe pastors are really in the crosshairs of the spiritual battle in ways that most of us don't even realize. And I think that's part of what we're seeing today. Mm-hmm. So if you were counseling somebody that was stepping into a leadership role in a church like that, who had you know, gone through some kind of brokenness, what would, what would be your initial advice? <laughs> well, I'd have lots of advices. As you may know, that's why Moody asked me to write this book, because two different times I did step into um, a church as the senior pastor on the heels of a very high visible, highly visible moral failure. They call me the OSHA pastor. Most guys are smart enough not to do it once. I did it twice. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I would tell him a number of things. Number one, you know, you got to live an authentic life because you're going to be under scrutiny now that trust has been violated. Mm-hmm. Uh, secondly, I, I would obviously tell him just faithfully preach the word of God because that's what brings healing and renewal. Uh, I would thirdly, as you might guess, call them, uh, challenge them to call the church to prayer because only God can bring the healing. And when we're on our knees, we're in the best position to receive that. And and really, when we pray, you know, I would say when we're on our knees, that's who we really are. And I think prayer rebuilds trust faster than anything, especially when a pastor's praying with his people. And then the last thing, honestly, I'd tell them, get ready for a truckload of pain. The reality is hurting people hurt others. And particularly when you step into a situation after moral failure, 
you're going to be absorbing a lot of pain and anger and hurt that you didn't cause, but you're going to have to to resolve and help people work through. Wow, that's that's very humbling. In your book, you uh, mentioned uh, Dr. J. Robert Clinton's proposal that 70 percent of leaders do not finish well. That that number seems really high. It really does. And by finishing well, it doesn't necessarily mean 70 percent had a moral failure, but they get discouraged and quit or they decide just to go into another area of ministry or even finish, uh, you know, unfruitfully. They, they're just going through the motions and they, they just don't really keep running for the prize. And, you know, he gave a number of reasons for that. But whatever the statistic is, honestly, I think we agree on this bill. If it's 10 percent, that's that's urgent enough. But. Uh, you know, a lot of different points of research tell us that many, many pastors leave the ministry on a monthly basis. And we, we just got to figure out how to help them aim higher, stay stronger, and, and walk the kind of walk that makes for vibrant pastoral ministry. Yeah. Da- um, Daniel, I talked to a pastor uh, this week, and and he was referencing that sometimes the creepiest part of his week could be Sunday night when he was just home from a full day of preaching and wondering if he was connecting with his his church body. And, and, you know, you go through these little feelings of, uh, you know, how did I do? And, and obviously you're not looking for the approval of men, but you still are a human with, a with feelings. <laughs> and, sure are. um, how did, how did, uh, how did you deal with that? Did you have those moments on Sunday nights where you went, huh? Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, most pastors describe it as the Monday morning blues, you know, by the time you sleep on it, you're still in a funk. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the Satan is a, a master at counterpunching and he knows that, you know, the pastor's given his best. He studied, he's poured his heart out, has no idea really what the ultimate fruit is of that. And the enemy wants to do everything he can to discourage you. <laughs> You'll think this is funny, Bill, but during my decades of pastoral ministry, on Sunday night, I would just try to get my mind off of it, and I would I would watch bull riding. Isn't that a funny habit? I mean, <laughs> I, I just thought, you know, I can't sit and analyze my sermon. I'm just going to watch bull riding. <laughs> and then Monday morning, uh, my habit was I would lead the men in our church in a 6 a.m. Monday morning prayer time. Nice. And I would never take Mondays off because my family was worthy of better than what I had to offer my Monday but it was kind of getting my mind off of it and then just jumping in with my men right away early Monday, getting back into a rhythm of prayer that helped me survive the Monday morning blues. <laughs> yeah, that's great, Daniel. What? How, how do leaders um, maybe reset their motivations if they've gotten a little stuck? Or or maybe I should ask, what are the qualities of, a, of an, uh, an overcoming leader? Well, you know, to, to address the issue of motivation, Bill, I think that's one of the issues. That's why in the book, that's the first thing I deal with, our, our reasons for getting into ministry. And I'm afraid in the day of, of, you know, media and social media and the awareness of all the ministry rock stars out there, it can really taint why we even get into ministry. And and I remind the readers that in Paul's day, when he said it's an honorable ambition, you know, he who desires the office of a bishop desires a good thing. In Paul's day, that simply meant you were the first one to get your head chopped off, not that you're going to get the big office or or write the big books. It, it literally meant the ambition was to sacrifice your life for the sake of the gospel. Mm-hmm. So as it relates to motives, we, we've got to keep coming back to that. You know, we're following a Jesus who said, I came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give my life away. But, you know, along the way, that can get skewed. And as I talk about in the book, you know, we can begin to neglect our spiritual life. We can fall into patterns of self-reliance. 
uh, pretty soon we're, we're into professionalism and entitlement. And, you know, we, we've got to have kind of a grid to evaluate that personally. But even Paul, Bill said, I don't even know my own motives sometimes. So, so then we need mirrors of accountability. Uh, we need to be looking at what the real fruit of the ministry is. And, and honestly, continue to ask for input as to what others think is really driving us. Because, as we know, we can do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. So we need to be ministering in an honest community that can help us keep our, our reasons pure. Mm-hmm. You know, Daniel, I I love your commitment to prayer and your devotion to talking about it and doing it. You don't just talk about it. You do it all the time. And I I know there's many who have uh, their prayer life has gone through the roof in the last couple of weeks, and they have found themselves on their knees and in prayer more than ever, which is a wonderful thing. But Mm -hmm. I know in in the book you talk about we have a tendency to to engage in, I think, what you call our zipper prayers. And they're like quick (laughs) appeals to God for you know, a blessing over our plans. Um, we need to rethink how we, how we pray and how we talk to God. Um, is that fair? Oh, it is fair. And, you know, most of us, and I, in some of my other books, I talk about this. We just grew up in kind of the old-fashioned approach to prayer, a request-based approach. I always joke that early on I had an aversion. I had a drug problem. My parents drug me to the midweek prayer meeting every week, and <laughs> that thing was a sleeper, you know. It was just 55 minutes of uh, ingrown toenails and slipped discs and knee replacements. And, yeah. You know, and I think the big change in my life and in the pastors that we coach and the churches I've led has been learning the difference between seeking God's hand and seeking His, his face Seeking God's hand is just what we need from him. Thus, a zipper prayer will do. You know, we hope he'll bless our meeting. Uh, Seeking God's face is really seeking him from a standpoint of worship. We call it worship-based prayer. And uh, Bill, I often remind people that if all you ever do is seek God's hand, you may miss his face. You know, just treat him like a heavenly, uh, you know, kind of a slot machine. But if you seek his face, he'll be glad to open his hand. And I'm hoping, Bill, honestly, even during these days, while it is a crisis that is motivating our prayer it will ultimately be our passion to know God and to align ourselves with His will that will be the real change in our prayer lives during these days. Yeah. Daniel, how do we take it to that next level? How do we go home tonight and, and try to seek His face? I love that question. Uh, we, I'm a big fan of what I call probably being my tombstone, Bill, with about a thousand other things. I'm going to need a really big tombstone because I just <laughs> think in terms of one line at a time, right? Yeah. But I call it Scripture-fed, Spirit-led, worship-based prayer beginning our prayers in the Bible. Uh, One pastor friend said to me, I used to pray with my eyes closed and my Bible closed. Now I pray with my eyes open and my Bible open. I love that. I always say, Bill, that that whoever starts a conversation tends to guide it. Mm -hmm. So let's let God start the conversation. And obviously the Word of God is living. It's going to reveal to us truths about God. Therefore, our first instinct will be to worship Him out of His Word and to simply praise Him based on what He's told us about Himself and uh, and then go to our requests. Uh, we, we bank a lot on, as we should, the Lord's Prayer model. And one of the things I just said today in some of my coaching groups, Bill, is that fundamentally there's two halves to the Lord's Prayer. The first half is all Godward. Our Father who art in heaven, how be thy name, thy kingdom, thy, thy, right? Second mm-hmm. half is manward, us, us, us. So the way I love to say it, I even get wristbands that say this, that we hand out everywhere. He is worthy, we are needy. He is worthy, we are needy. So if someone goes, someone goes home tonight, and before you think about your neediness, focus on God's worthiness, and that will change the way you pray about your neediness. I, 
another one-liner often say, the clearer his face is, the bigger his hand will get. In other words, the more clearly you see the face of God, you worship, you understand his character, the more you can trust his hand in your life. And that's a game changer in people's prayer lives. Wow, that's really powerful, Daniel. I, I love that you shared that. I would love to hear it all again, but I can go back and listen to the podcast, but you just expressed you it. Go. You exp- expressed it so, so beautifully. So um, I'm going to take a, a short break. Uh, Daniel Henderson is my guest. The book he's written is called "Glorious Finish: Keeping Your Eyes on the Prize of Eternity in a Time of Pastoral Failings." I have lots more questions about prayer when we come back. And if you have one, I'll squeeze it in for you. Send me a text: eight seven seven nine three three twenty four eighty four. Be right back. show. My guest Daniel Henderson has written a book called Glorious Finish, Keeping Your Eyes on the Prize of Eternity in Time of Pastoral Failings. In your book, you say Paul exemplified what the Lord Jesus affirmed, that authenticity at its core is the result of abiding in intimate connection to Christ. And supernatural fruit can only originate from the divine flow of Christ's life in and through us. I love that, Daniel. That's really strong. Yeah, there's, there's kind of a, a very sarcastic adage among pastors every once in a while you hear, uh, you know, the key to ministry is to be sincere, and once you learn to fake that, you've got it made. Right? Yeah. So <laughs> that's not what we want in ministry. And uh, again, I, I think um, just that abiding in Christ, one of the things it does for every pastor, every believer, it not only gives us a great vision of God, as we talked about a moment ago, in terms of our focus on Him first, but it reminds us of who we really are, you know. And I remember one time, Bill, I was sitting at lunch with Henry Blackaby. Um, he put his hand on mine in his sage way, and he said, you know, Daniel, I'm convinced there are more people in ministry today out of insecurity than out of calling. And, of course, his observation is sometimes we, we really are ministering out of a, a need to be affirmed, a need to find our identity in what we do. And I think that's kind of what's rooted in the statement you read, that that when we really know God in an abiding relationship, we, we are secure in our own skin, we're secure in who we are in Christ, and thus we are able to bear the fruit of an authentic life rather than trying to, to prove our value or prove something in ministry by what we accomplish. That's interesting you say that, Daniel, because I know a lot of broken people will try to gravitate into the look-at-me business, because then they can say, uh-huh. you know, look at all the people that admire me now. Exactly. And, you know, one of my friends, Jim Cimbala, pastor in Brooklyn, he says the microphone is a drug. (laughs) And, you know, especially those who are in public ministry, as you know, for any of us, and I've enjoyed your comedy shows when I lived in Minnesota there and, you know, I preach and and yet we've always all all of us have to guard our hearts, whatever our platform is, small or large, uh, to make sure that that what we are doing on the, the, the front stage is really the overflow of, of health on the backstage, right? And I think that's the key for pastors who, who finish well as is, is well. Yeah, I'd love for you to talk about um, accountability. That must be a big one with failing pastors. It is. Um, I think probably a lot of us have negative views of accountability. 
in, in the book, I, I use an analogy. Imagine a world without mirrors. <laughs> That's a crazy thing to think about. But, uh, you know, a world where there are no mirrors to tell you what you really look like, to tell you what your, your appearance is. And when it comes to, um, you know, those of us in ministry, we, we have to have good, accurate mirrors, not the kind that you see when you go through those crazy houses at the, at the state fair, but real authentic mirrors. And I think every pastor needs a variety of mirrors, obviously his family and his wife. Um, I think a, a mentor who can mirror back to him what they see objectively. I think colleagues uh, who are in ministry. But then I think there's also those that you really trust your soul to, you know, who are in a little bit of a different category. Uh, and I think every every pastor, every leader, every Christian needs someone in that kind of a, um, you know environment. And one of the things we don't think about is just the accountability of our, our Timothys, our disciples. Uh, Bill, when I was in pastoral ministry, every week I would meet with a crop of young guys for a period of a year. And, you know, that's a great accountability to look into the eyes of, of younger believers who are watching you and how you live and how you speak and how you act. I think all of that provides a level of accountability. It's absolutely vital for all of us. And so we need those mirrors. And without those mirrors, we can begin to believe just what we're telling ourselves about ourselves, which can sometimes become very deceptive. <laughs> mm-hmm. Daniel, when a pastor has fallen and they have suffered that uh, disgrace period in their ministry, can they be reinstated? Are they are they in a place where they can be welcomed back and do strong ministry again? That that's a really uh, interesting, sometimes delicate question. And in fact, I had a hard time I asking it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I didn't even put that in the book. And and then Moody specifically asked me if I would be sure to weigh in on that. So so I did. Uh, I think um, obviously it depends on what the cause was, you know, how, how visible and the nature of, um, you know, what really happened. But what I mentioned in the book is several factors that I think are really important as we think about restoring someone to leadership. The first one is definition. In other words, what does it mean to be a leader? If you define a leader as just someone who's gifted and can get up and deliver the goods and, and build the, the numbers, then sure, put him back. But if a leader is a model of virtue to his people, then you need to be very careful, right, about, about doing that. Another factor I mentioned is the depth of repentance, which has to be observed by others who are close to that individual. Uh, because again, it, it's very easy just to be eager to get back into the saddle without really dealing with not just the the, uh, the consequences of the sin, but the causes of the sin. I do think time is very important to give time for things to settle down, time for new habit patterns, uh, a new sense of integrity to be rebuilt. As I mentioned earlier, Bill, uh, making sure that the the pressure to want to get back in the ministry is is really driven by calling and not a sense of identity, trying to find identity in that role. And I honestly believe, Bill, the, the best ones to make that decision are the people who are in the ministry environment where the violation occurred. And, and I think mm. when they feel he's ready, either in that church or another church, that's a key indicator. Too many guys who, who have some kind of a, a significant scandalous failing get around that by moving to a different city and starting over again, which I think is very sad. I don't think that's a really healthy process for dealing with the real issues that caused the downfall in the first place. Yeah. Now, Daniel, church growth, what a wonderful thing. But the last several years, do you think that we're going about it the right way with the 
trying to increase um, our 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 numbers through um, celebrity preachers and multiple campuses and all that, and we can't uh-huh. grow things fast enough. And is that is that wise? You know, kind of my backstory to that that answer for that question, Bill, would be that. Um, I think in Western culture, we are the ultimate achievement society. We are driven to achieve. And when I look at the New Testament, I'm convinced that in the in the early church, ministry was not achieved, it was received. It was received from the Holy Spirit. And, and um, uh, in another one of my books, I talk about our current obsession with two ideas, and that is vision and leadership, both of which are not mentioned in the Bible nearly as often as they are mentioned in our culture today. And often note, the devil doesn't care what you depend on as long as it's not the Holy Spirit. And the more tempting and functional that alternative is, the more dangerous it is. And so I, I think, again, kind of what we are talking about earlier, we're, we're kind of driven by a lot of different things these days in ministry. So I always have tried to set my heart, and I know most pastors do, and it's very important, on, on health, because real biblical health will produce growth. But chasing after growth will not always produce health. In fact, in many cases, it will undermine health. Mm. And that's why I think we see so many highly driven, quote, unquote, leaders, you know, get into burnout, disqualification, scandal, et cetera. Uh, you know, Jesus said, I will build my church and we don't need to compete with him. I think we need to, to really believe that the Holy Spirit and the word of God and a life of prayer is sufficient to build a biblical church of healthy people that will produce real life-giving gospel growth. Mm-hmm. Daniel, what are what are some things that the church can do right now to be supporting their pastors? Because even their pastors are finding themselves in positions that make them feel pretty awkward going into an empty church and preaching in front of a camera. Yeah, that, that's a strange sensation, isn't it? Oh, it would have well, to be. Well, especially, yeah, and, and again, um, in the last three weeks, I have interacted with, oh man, probably three or 400 pastors at a personal level uh, in some meetings before they were not legal, and then also in our coaching. And I don't know that people really understand the stress that pastors are feeling, you know, just this new paradigm of how do I communicate? How do we take care of hurting people in our church? How do we deal with the, what the government's telling us? And, uh, um, you know, our offerings are obviously taking a hit and, and the health and momentum of the ministry seems to be floundering. So I would say, you know, in this time and all the time, honestly, Bill, pray for your pastor. It's hard to be a critic and an intercessor at the same time. You know, that's, that's an important point. Uh, you know, try to understand what he's going through. And that's why several of the endorsers of Glorious Finish, Jim Symbol included, said he hopes everybody in the pew will read this book simply to understand the the journey that pastors are on and how hard it is. I would say protect your pastor from criticism. You know, when anybody comes to you with a critical thought about your pastor, a fire is brewing and you can either put water or gasoline on it. So always choose water. Mm-hmm. And and one of the things I learned, Bill, from Leith Anderson, pastor from the, the Twin Cities area, they're a good friend of mine. He said, you know, I think the, the thing that makes pastoral ministry harder today than it was 100 years ago is that 100 years ago, the only way to compare your pastor with another pastor was to go on vacation. <laughs> and I think every pastor is always under the scrutiny of comparison. They're not as deep as John MacArthur. They're not as clever as Andy Stanley. They don't have the hair and teeth of Joel Olstein, whatever it is, right? And uh, that comparison is so defeating, except the pastor God has called to shepherd you. Love him, pray for him, understand him, protect him. And I think the whole church will be healthier as a result. Mm-hmm. So 
What are the results of a glorious finish? Unfortunately, we've only got 90 seconds left, and I've asked a big question. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, that's kind of the theme of the book. Uh, very quickly, Bill, I've been captured by a phrase in 1 Peter 5, which is all of our calling. We think we're called to, to be a pastor or be a layman, a businessman. But it says, God who has called you to his eternal glory in Jesus Christ. So we need to keep our eye on the real scoreboard. The scoreboard is the scoreboard in heaven. We have a perfect scorekeeper. He never misses a call. And so the, the, the glorious finish is ultimately about the eternal glory of God. But it's also about a legacy that matters for the glory of Christ here on earth and for the good of the souls of those who have been in our footsteps. It's a finish that is satisfying in the greatest sense to know that God has been faithful to you, and by His grace, you've been faithful to Him and to His call. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, Bill, it's all about the glory of God, and that's where we need to fix our sights. It's not that our desires are too are too strong for the bad stuff. It's that our desires are too weak for the ultimate goal, and that is the eternal glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus yeah. Christ. Daniel, where should I best point my listeners for getting a copy of your book? Well, thank you. We have a website, gloriousfinish.com. Of course, the book is available. It comes out actually April 7th, but you can pre-order it on Amazon and on all the other, uh, uh, obviously, book retailers. It's available on Kindle as well as on audio. And we would love people not only be encouraged by reading it for the sake of their pastors, but hopefully give a copy or two to their church leaders to encourage their heart. Daniel, thank you so much. Daniel Henderson has been my guest. His book is Glorious Finish, Keeping Your Eye on the Prize of Eternity in a Time of Pastoral Failings. That wraps up our show for the day. Thank you for listening. I hope you have a lovely evening. God bless, and I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.